It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines, a panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Now, here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. Who wants to talk sports? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, along with my co-host John Riley from our studios in San Diego. It's our Thursday weekly podcast as we head towards the great sports weekend and Christmas weekend. John, good afternoon. We've got a lot to talk about, but before we get started, let's introduce the new people who are joining us on live stream for the first time. A lot of my followers from my website, LeeHacksawHamilton.com, are joining us. How can they get involved? with what's going to happen at the end of the show, the fans form, and introduce to them how they subscribe so they get all the alerts for what we do during the week in addition to Hacksaw's Headlines podcast. All right. So uh, as far as fans form goes, you know, we live stream the show on Facebook and on YouTube and actually on Twitter, too. Uh, but you can get involved in the fans forum. Maybe you've got a question, a hot take. You want to share something with Hacksaw. Go on either the Facebook or YouTube live stream and then just type your comment or question there. We'll see it on our screen. We'll bring it up in the fans forum segment at the conclusion of Hacksaw's Headlines. And yeah, by by all means, get on there, subscribe, subscribe on YouTube, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, and uh, follow Lee at uh, Twitter on Twitter at uh, Hacksaw1090. Okay, a lot of topics on the table, and let's start with a big marquee story in the National Football League. This came out of nowhere. This is a real sudden story. Franco Harris passes away. Uh, best known for the immaculate reception with the Pittsburgh Steelers in the Raiders playoff game, best known for a decade plus of excellence as a big power back in Chuck Knoll's offense, and best known, I think, for a lot of the community stuff he did. You know, John, I was thinking about this on the way over to our San Diego studios. The NFL historically has a couple of moments where there's an asterisk that says, yeah, that made the NFL. First one was in 1958, first televised championship game, New York football giants, Baltimore Colts, overtime, Alan Amici's touchdown run in overtime gave the Baltimore Colts the championship. That was the first game on TV, and it really set up trend and a pace of what the National Football League was going to be. Another moment with an asterisk has to be the holy roller play. Raiders, Chargers, Ted Hendricks, what was legal, what was illegal, that's there. And the Immaculate Reception, I think, is the third one. Franco Harris picking up the ricocheted pass off the shoulder pads of John Frenchie Fuqua and taking it in for the game-winning touchdown, Steelers-Oakland Raiders AFC playoff game. Hell of a player. I first crossed paths with him uh, when he was at Penn State. Might have been 1971. He was a huge Nittany Lion alum, did enormous things for the university, was one of the few guys that stood up on behalf of Joe Paterno in the midst of the whole Jerry Sandusky scandal. I first met him in 1970. I broadcast a game at Beaver Stadium, 105,000. He was not the starting running back. He was the starting fullback. Starting running back was Lydell Mitchell. Oh, Yeah. Baltimore Colts, Mm -hmm. who was drafted the year before Franco was drafted. Those two guys ran like a freight train all day long. It was phenomenal. What a great player. Uh, What a great human being. His philanthropic stuff that he did in Pittsburgh and was still doing uh, hospitals, 
educational foundations, scholarships for kids in the inner city. What a great, great human being. And, you know, he was part of a great Steeler team. You think of that era, you think of Steel Curtain defense, Jack Lambert, Mean Joe Green. You think of Bradshaw, Swan, Stallworth. You need to think of Franco Harris because he was really the last piece that they put into the puzzle that made the Steelers, Chuck Knowles-led team, a complete football team, got four Super Bowl rings. Hell of a guy. Yeah, I mean, just tremendous. I know that he's beloved in Pittsburgh. And, you know, Penn State right down the road there from Pittsburgh, of course. I just remember um, you know, the Immaculate Reception 1972, right? And I was seven years old at the time. That's when I first started really following the NFL. And I was, of course, following the Raiders at the time because I was up in the Bay Area. And the Raiders and the Steelers had so many epic playoff games in the 70s. And I'm trying to remember if I watched the Immaculate Reception live or if that's one of those fuzzy memories when you're seven. But I just remember all those games at Three Rivers and the Steelers were so darn hard to beat for the Raiders. But that team was just loaded and it even had Rocky Blyer, you know, the Vietnam vet. I mean, it was just a really colorful team that is one of the you know, one of the greatest eras in the NFL. Tell you what, when I used to, as voice of the Chargers and Seahawks, the Steelers were still playing at Three Rivers and you go up in an elevator and you get off the elevator on fifth level, and to the left are all the Steelers' offices, and to the right, big concourse that goes all the way around the stadium. You walk around that concourse, and I'll tell you, it's like the echoes of the history of the Steelers are there. It's just If those walls could talk, the stories they could tell you would be unbelievable. And I had access one time to go to Mr. The owner, um, Brainlock. Steelers owner. I know, and I'm brain-locking, too. Oh, come on. Um, uh, Rooney. I went to Art Rooney's office. Mm-hmm. It's a shrine. It's like a Hall of Fame memorabilia that goes back. Of course, he owned the Rooney family, bought the franchise, I think, in 1933. And so I had access to go in. This is after he had passed. And just amazing just to stand there and, and see old helmets and pictures of all the famous people he was with. What a what an amazing place. And like I say, Three Rivers Stadium. It just you walk through the place and just the history with all the great teams, mm-hmm. obviously that Chuck Knoll had, then Bill Cower had and, and Mike Tomlin had in the early era. Uh, just really a special time. Uh and it's it's eerie. The Steelers this weekend were honoring the fiftieth anniversary of the Immaculate Reception, and Franco was supposed to be there, and he mm. passed away very suddenly. Oh. This is an amazing story. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's just a, it's a tough moment for NFL fans, but you know, talking about Three Rivers and the Rooney family, just what an incredibly well-run organization. Oh yeah, you know, just the the continuity is what I think about. Where they've kept coaches and GMs for long periods of time, they weren't constantly blowing up the model and restarting. So, just a lot of greatness there in those halls. So, good on you for being able being out there at Three Rivers. The Italian army of Franco Harris to mm-hmm. the terrible towel and all that in between. Yeah. How cool a Steeler football. Okay, next question, John. Okay, so we were talking about this innovator in college football, Mike Leach, and so the story is continuing. Yeah, the memorial service at Mississippi State this week for the deceased uh, Bulldogs head coach. Did a great job flipping Mississippi State, making them a bowl team. Prior to that, did that at Washington State, one of the real outposts in the Pac-12 conference. 
And before that, at, at uh, Texas Tech, the ceremony, the memorial service was fun. Uh, they had pictures of Leach at all the different places. They ran videos of some of the stunts that Leach pulled. There were 21 coaches that had either coached against Leach or worked under him and became head coaches were at the funeral, led by Nick Saban, led by Lane Kiffin, the arch enemy down the road at Ole Miss. Lincoln Riley came from USC. They laughed. They told stories. Uh, he was just a most unique individual. And as they got ready at the end of the funeral service, so the memorial service, as everybody was about to depart and walk down the aisles of the, of the uh, it wasn't a church, it was in the, their arena, walk down the aisles to exit. What'd they play? Frank Sinatra, My Way. Of course. Cool. It was really cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I've, I've seen some of the video and man, oh man, what a, what a unique character, personality, Pretty good coach. And like I said last week on our podcast when he had died suddenly, electric offense, eclectic personality. Probably won't see that again. Yeah, I mean, there's been so much of an outpouring of love across the media, in social media for the guy. Uh, So it was neat to see all the people come together. You know, it's almost like an all-star event, you know, when they're all there. And when there's a sports figure that is larger than life, that funeral is a real celebration of life. You know, to me, the epic of that example is when Muhammad Ali passed. Sure. You know, and you, and it's almost like, you know, the the Grammys or the Emmys are in the audience watching the event. It's such so spectacular. So what a great way to remember a great man. Yeah. We had a sad note here at San Diego State this week, and this came out of nowhere. Ronnie Hillman, the first of the really modern-day, very good running backs at San Diego State, has passed away. Age 31, he had pancreatic cancer. Uh, He just passed in Atlanta, Georgia. Interesting kid. He was from Beverly Hills, came to San Diego State, and did not academically qualify his first year, but he stayed in school. He was not academically eligible to play. Stayed in school, got, got eligible. Put together back-to-back, I think 1,100 yards one season, 1,200 yards another, and then left to go to the NFL. Went to the Denver Broncos, played four years for Denver, was part of a rotation of running back with another guy by the name of C.J. Anderson, and collectively they had really good seasons. Uh, Ronnie was four years there, then got cut loose, went to Minnesota, but he got hurt, finished up with just a cup of coffee with the Chargers, and then walked away from football fairly early in his career. But if you look back in modern-day Aztec football, and we separate modern-day from the great Don Coriel era when they were college champs in Division Two and all that, but he was the first one. Uh, and then D.J. Pumphrey came, mm-hmm. and he was obviously in the Heisman Trophy race. And then Rashad Penny came. Uh, so it's too bad. Uh, this this uh, just hit has kind of hit the Aztec football team like a, a ton of bricks falling on them. And, of course, they're getting ready to play uh, in the Hawaii Bowl on Christmas Eve. But I think they're going to wear a sticker uh, in memory of number 22, Ronnie Hillman. Nice kid. Always smiled. And and. You give him credit. He didn't bail out when he had the academic issue getting in the front door. He stayed. He put together two really good years. Well, I, I didn't know that story about his back history and, and the academics, but 
what a great a great player, a great human. Um, it was a shocker when we got this yeah. news, and I guess it was pancreatic cancer. And I know that can just go through you in a short amount of time. So really sad, tough moment for San Diego State. But um, yeah, he was the first of the the, re- the recent era of great running backs at the program. Yeah, I mean, when you consider, I mean, he was not a Heisman guy, but you know that Marshall Falk was the first modern day great one back in the early '90s, and then Ronnie Hillman came at the end of the decade, and then obviously we we marched through what what Pumphrey became and what Rashad Penny became. So we got a lot of football to talk about. Next question. Okay, so we've been talking about J.C. Jackson all throughout the NFL season. First the signing, then you know he has his struggles on the field, gets hurt, and now this. Well, we don't know the depth of what happened. They're saying it's it's a domestic incident, but it is not a domestic assault incident. And from what I can gather, he he came. I I know his background. He really struggled as a kid. Uh, tough life, hard scrabble upbringing, bounced around, wound up coming out here, played at Riverside City College for a year, uh, but the kid was dirt poor, destitute, mm. and then went back home, got himself eligible and enrolled at the University of Florida, and the rest is history. Became a really good college player, put together some three three phenomenal years with the New England Patriots, and then left and came to the Chargers. But he was involved in some type of domestic argument. It was not brute force. There was no physical confrontation. Okay. Uh, the lawyer says that the, the family will probably drop the Chargers. Uh, I guess what stuns me is he's in the middle of all this rehab from this very serious reconstructive knee surgery uh, from the bad knee injury early in the season. Just curious why he's on the East Coast in Massachusetts rather than here doing rehab uh, with the Charger doctors. But Chargers have been closed mouth, have not said anything else. I don't know whether he'll get disciplined by the league once this thing gets adjudicated through the courts, but tough situation. Guy guy came from a bad situation, made himself a really good player, now has hit a bump in the road with his career and to a degree, I guess, with his life. Yeah, I guess when it rains, it pours, right? Oh, right. For for the Chargers and for Jackson and his family. I'm happy to hear that it's not physical. Uh, there, there was no brute force. Um, but to your point, there are a lot of athletes that come from difficult circumstances that maybe didn't have the best role models growing up, that had, you know, had to make tough life choices. And then suddenly they're thrust into stardom. They're now adults. They're they're surrounded by money, huge expectations. And it's hard to keep your life on track if you don't really have good guidance in the early years. I think the other factor in the equation is a terrible thing to put it up on the board this way. You can take the player out of the hood. Can you take the hood out of the player? Mm. Players cannot go back home and get reinvolved with bad characters that they were part of growing up. A lot of guys stay away from it. Some guys drift back into it. And money changes everything. And there's so many stories of those who got paid enormous amounts of money who have lost it all and are now living on the streets. It's just, it's unbelievable in the National Football League, but it's its a tough road to hoe if you come from, from poverty and you suddenly become rich because there's hangers-on, there's family issues, there's the old posse. Mm. It's its tough. And I've talked to NFL general managers about how you help guys, how you 
direct players uh, so that they don't go back to where they came from and get themselves in trouble. We'll see where the J.C. Jackson story goes. I hope I hope this works out well for him. Chargers owe him an awful lot of money. He owes them a lot for because they gave him mm-hmm. a lot of money. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, you got to just keep trying to get better. Jackson's got to work on getting better, and so do the Chargers. Okay, on we go. Baseball. Talk about stories coming out of the clear blue sky like a bolt of lightning. (laughs) How about the San Francisco giant Carlos Correa story? Wow. Yeah, and this was a shocker. I mean, because we figured it was just a done deal. He was going to sign the contract. And next thing I know, he's heading to New York. All right, here's the background on the Correa situation from what I've been able to put through. The Giants committed this amount of money. He it was going to sign, thirteen year contract, three fifty. Somewhere along the way, after the agreement was reached, contract had yet been signed. After the agreement was reached, somebody got cold feet within the Giants organization, and suddenly started to question the medical, the physical evaluation that he went through before the contract was to be approved. Now, Carlos Correa had a shattered ankle when he was in the minor leagues. Now, he's, he's recovered from that. But like anything else, when you go through major bones being broken, arthritis can rear its head. Yeah. He's had two back issues while he was with the Houston Astros. There's only two or three seasons, and he's played almost a complete season. So suddenly, San Francisco gets cold feet, and they, they say, wait a minute, we want to go get a second opinion. Well, the agent, Scott Boros, says, okay, you go get a second opinion. We're going to go get one. So the agent took Correa into Los Angeles, met with Dr. Robert Watkins, national famous spine Mm -hmm. surgeon who treats all types of back injuries with major league players. Watkins comes back with a written evaluation, says he is an elite athlete in elite health. Boros takes it to the Giants. Giants say... We're not getting the same vibes from the second opinion we got. We want to consider changing the structure of the contract. So I was told Boris gave them a window, and the window closed. They'd never responded. Boris voided the San Francisco deal. And, of course, the Mets were on the back burner because Boris contacted the Mets. And overnight, just like that, at 7 a.m. one morning, you and I woke up with a cup of coffee texting each other as Carlos Correa is a New York Met. Holy cow. Yeah. That's the background that I have on the story. The Giants are closed mouth. This has been a catastrophic uh, mess for the Giants. Huge credibility problem, I think, for for their ownership and their leadership. If you had reservations, why did you ever do that contract to begin with? Mm -hmm. Except you want to dive to the front of the line and here's the money, the contract. Uh, it's, It's a bad look for the Giants and it's a Bad roster situation for San Francisco, John, because all the free agents are off the board. And Scott Boris said last night, my client, that shortstop, played 148 and 136 games the last two years. There's nothing physically wrong with him. Now, maybe the Giants got cold feet and thought, ankle, back, what's he going to be like at age 35 and we're still going to owe him another seven years or so on the contract? So... It's kind of messy, and the Giants take a blow, and the Mets. Mets just kind of blew through the luxury tax threshold. (laughs) Yes, they did. (laughs) This is amazing. As of right now, when we go have pizza after we're done with our podcast, John, 
As of right now, the Mets payroll is three forty-six, three hundred forty-six million, and the Mets luxury tax figure is one hundred eleven million dollars, all-time record. So I'm not good at new math on the fly, but what's three forty-six and one eleven? That's going to be the total amount of money the Mets have invested on this roster this year. How about that? Wow, like 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 almost that. Half a trillion dollars or half a billion dollars getting all my numbers mixed up. But just to go back to Correa and the Giants, as a Giants fan, I was disappointed because they've had all these opportunities to sign, you know, some marquee free agents, get some star power in at Oracle Park. And it just they can't they can't make it happen. It seemed to me like you're right. It was cold feet. Maybe they had buyer's remorse right after they agreed to it. And this just kind of gave them a convenient out, you know, to to slip out of the deal doesn't reflect well in the Giants organization. But I, I'm telling you, I was so looking forward to seeing him with the Giants uniform play the Dodgers in L.A., and that would have just been fantastic. And we kind of get deprived of that opportunity. But, oh, my God, the Mets, the Mets, their lineup, like one through nine, is just outrageous. Sure. And then they've got those, those starting pitchers. And Correa agreed to go play third base so they could keep Lindor at shortstop. Incredible. Incredible is just one word to use to describe it. A couple others I can't use yeah. on our podcast. It's amazing. <laughs> right, let's talk about the teams in town, the teams here in Southern California. Where do you want to go? Okay, we, we got to talk Padres. I mean, that's the, the primo team here that we care about in San Diego. Uh, when does spring training start? This is so impressive what the Padres have done. Uh, you, you look at the free agent acquisitions. And, I mean, the, the Padres' record-setting payroll. Padres have now filled virtually every slot in their lineup. And getting Xander Bogarts is obviously a critical piece of the equation for this season. Big Bat joins a pretty good lineup. And for down road, in case Manny Machado opts out, or who knows what the Soto situation will be like two years from tonight. But the signing of Matt Carpenter, this guy's a super utility guy. He was a rock-solid contributor with the St. Louis Cardinals. Really good ball player, multi-position. Got nicked up at the end of his Cardinal career. His numbers dipped. They let him on the market. He wound up with the Yankees. After getting finally healthy, hit 305 with 15 home runs in about two-thirds of a season. Then he broke his foot, fouled the ball off it, came back right at the end of the season, goes on the open market. Totally healthy, can play first, second, can play third can play the corner outfield spots, loves to pinch hit, and he might even be your DH. I think that's a pretty good acquisition. Uh, So you add Carpenter there. They went and got Seth Lugo from the New York Mets. He's kind of like Nick Martinez squared. He can be a starter. He can be a reliever. He's come back from arm problems, had a really good season last year. Very competitive guy. I think a really good upgrade the wild card in the whole thing might be the ex-Atlanta Braves pitcher, Julio Tehran. I mean, he his career record is 78 and 77. Most of that pitching for a bad Atlanta team. Uh, very good ERA. Had some health problems in his shoulder last couple of years. Bounced around. But the Padres have a history of helping guys coming off rehab and surgery. This guy can still pitch. Hey, I'd take him as my number four or number five starter. So suddenly we're sitting there with, with Lugo and Julio Tehran, and you say, wow, those those guys are proven commodities at the major league level. And as a fourth and fifth starter, John, uh, I, I think those are really good players. Sean Poppin was, was highly regarded the Arizona and Oakland A's systems, has not done it at the major league level, but a AAA has done pretty well. 
But, you know, the Padres bring him in and you work with the pitching coach and maybe you reinvent some pitch that he hasn't mastered and maybe it makes him a very different pitcher. David Dahl, I guess, is going to be part of the rotation in left field. He had a couple of really good years with the Colorado Rockies. Then he got hurt, kind of bounced around to Arizona. But he'll be rotating probably with somebody else uh, in left field. Aaron Brooks was highly, highly regarded coming up through the farm system. Just never got it done at the major league level. Has kind of bounced around. But when he was in the Cardinals organization, but he was held in high regard. And before that, he with Toronto. So maybe there's some mystery there that they can, quote, unlock. And Pedro Severino is probably an insurance policy at behind home plate. Uh, very good parts of his career with Milwaukee. Spent last year in Baltimore. Did get suspended uh, two years ago for steroids, but has bounced back. Got a pretty good bat. In fact, the guys that are on the Padre roster right now at catcher, He's got the best bat of any of the three or four guys that are in there. So that, that that's where they are right now. I, there's not much space left. I don't think there's very much money left in the payroll and the budget to go do anything else. But I, I do think getting Carpenter, who is a real vested veteran, and then you add in the combo of what they got with Lugo and Tehran, I like this Padre roster from top to bottom. Like I said, when does opening day start? Now, a couple of other notes. Will Myers is gone. Now, should the Padres have approached this differently? I'll just throw this at you, and you can argue with me if you want, but you'd probably be wrong. Uh, He signed with Cincinnati. Uh, One year plus an option. He took a pay cut from $20 million to 6.5 to sign with the Reds. And there's a million buyout if he doesn't invoke the option for the second year. He's going to hit. He's going to hit at Great American Ballpark. That's a bandbox. So he'll pop home runs there and... Now, if if he signed in Cincy for six five, why why would not the Padres get him signed for six five or seven? It's a huge cut from twenty million. So I was a little surprised at that. Brandon Drury is going up I five. Uh, Padres tried, some reason that they couldn't come to terms. Angels. Brandon Drury signs with the Angels, two year deal. This guy was a silver slugger, utility guy. Boy, I would have liked to seen him stay here. And Eric Hosmer is gone. Boston released him. They DFA'd him. Today they released him, which means he's on the open street. He'll get a job somewhere. Won't be in San Diego. I, I just think there's there's too much history here that's kind of bad the way this whole relationship ended up. And the fact that he also hit two fifty four in San Diego while making 20 mil per season. But he is on the open market, and he'll, he'll wind up somewhere, but it won't be anywhere near the kind of money he was making. However, the Padres... Padres owe $39 million to Eric Hosmer. They still owe him three years on the contract. And the Red Sox, who are, I guess, going into rebuild mode, dumped them. Uh, that doesn't say very much about Eric Hosmer's ability to play at the major league level or star at the major league level. He had good years in Kansas City. He just he never followed them up here in San Diego. All right, your turn. Argue with me. <laughs> well, one of the things that I love about what the Padres are doing, it's so different than in the previous years. I mean, guys like David Dahl and Tehran and Matt Carpenter, we used to sign those guys and those were our core players. And then we surround them with like these AAA, 4A guys. Now these are the guys that kind of fill in the gaps. Some of them are like lotto tickets. You hope they can turn into something. Um, the whole method of building this team, and we have a legit rock star GM. I mean, I'm on board with Preller. I think he's done some great things. He's made some mistakes. He's not. He's far from perfect. But I think what they're doing is right on track. They're not 
hanging on to those prospects like they're gold. They're using them as trade chips. And I like that strategy. As far as Myers goes, we all love him. You know, he's been here for, what, seven years in San Diego. And, you know, he's part of the community. We saw him buying drinks in the gas lamp quarter, you know, after the playoff games. I wish him the best. And I think that band box in Cincinnati is a great place for him to go. Put up some big numbers. It's only a one-year deal. And maybe he comes back and, uh, you know, gets a big contract um, to finish off his career. But Hosmer is done. Hosmer is done. I can't imagine anyone picking him up if maybe only just to fill a roster spot knowing they don't have to pay the minimum salary. Okay, on we go to the other two teams in Southern California. Let's talk Dodgers and let's talk about the Angels situation. The Dodgers have signed seven. Now they got ten guys that are off the roster from a year ago, but what they've replaced them with is not equal to what they lost. That's a big issue. Now, the Angels have really gone through some changes, and the Angels have added 11 players overall. Uh, I'm, I'm just fascinated with the chemistry of what Angel baseball is going to be. Let's start, first of all, with the Dodgers. We had talked extensively about losing Tyler Anderson. We talked about uh, what happened when they decided not to offer Bellinger, and he's gone, and Justin Turner just signed with the Boston Red Sox. So the Dodgers have really moved a lot of guys off the roster. Obviously, the first one to leave was Trey Turner going to to Philadelphia. But the Dodgers just signed J.D. Martinez, the Boston Red Sox DH. So he's going to come in. He can play a little bit in the field, but he's probably going to be more of a full-time designated hitter. And and when you look at the rest of the Dodger roster or the Dodger acquisitions, it's, it's just kind of unique. Jason Hayward's got a lot of miles on him. Maybe he'll be a super utility outfielder. Maybe he finds himself at Dodger Stadium. He's had a couple of real down-cycle years. Here's what I think's going on at Dodger Stadium. They're getting below the luxury tax. You know, they were, at one point they were $100 million in budget space because of all the guys they were exiting. I don't know what they're going to be like this year because they're going to ask five young players to make this next step from Oklahoma City and actually be contributors at the major league level. And they're renting the J.D. Martinez's of the world. Dodgers are preparing to make a run at Shohei Otani. Oh, yeah. Big time run. And I think that's that's why they're doing all this from a financial standpoint is to get below the luxury tax threshold, have all this wealth and go to the front of the line because we're the Dodgers, four million fans, history, legacy, including great players from the Pacific Rim. Come play for us, Mr. Otani. I think that's what's going on at Dodger Stadium. The Angels, it's it's a unique chemistry blend. And they're getting the kind of guys that grind. They're getting the kind of guys, John, who will play for the manager. And who is Phil Nevin? A grinder. Yeah, big time. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what the chemistry is like. But they, they go get Hunter Renfro. And now they get Brandon Drury, and those two guys are gamers and grinders. And they added Tyler Anderson, who reinvented himself as a starting pitcher. They've gone into the marketplace and gotten two relief pitchers, Carlos Estevez, whom I'm surprised that Colorado allowed to get away. So I, I think the Angels' chemistry experiment is very different. And if they can keep Trout and Rendon and Otani on the field and healthy, and they, they traded for Gino Urshela, who's another grinder who wants to play, multi-position guy, shortstop, third base. They keep all those guys on the field. Angels might be a heck of a lot better than anybody realizes. Right, your turn. Okay, well, the Angels are in a really tough division. 
I mean, you got the Astros, you got the Rangers with Bochi and DeGrom. In Seattle. And Seattle is much improved. Um, the A's are still down at the bottom of the list, but the Angels, I, I agree. I, I love Phil Nevin. I mean, I got to know him and met him a few times here in town. I'm rooting for him. And to see them actually putting these pieces together is wonderful. But what the Dodgers are doing at first, I thought they were clearing space to make room for Judge. But yeah, maybe it is Otani. This reminds me of what the Lakers did when they were clearing space to get Shaq, you know, in the late 90s. So these teams, they've got to kind of maneuver and they've got to play their game to get in the right position. Okay, before we start on the uh, in football, the NFL, uh, remind all of our viewers on our live stream how they can participate in Fans Forum and talk to them about how they can subscribe so they have access to all the unique things that we offer on our new podcast weekly. Okay, so Fans Forum's already filling up. So thanks again for everyone that's jumping in. We're going to get your comments involved in the Fans Forum at the end of this podcast episode. Um, so you can just type in your questions and comments on the Facebook or on the YouTube live stream. And then be sure sure to subscribe wherever you get your audio only podcasts and on the YouTube channel for Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. Subscribe, hit that bell and get all the alerts. And by the way, if you like sports, if you're a longtime listener and a follower, even if you're a hater, check my website out. It's all written. I write on it every day. It's LeeHacksawHamilton.com. Best 15 minutes in sports, Hacksaw's headlines, one man's opinion column today on sports and politics. You won't want to miss that. You'll probably be yelling at me by the time uh, you're <laughs> it done reading it. was a good one. It. I enjoyed it. Okay, let's talk NFL football. Here's my favorite phrase. What was that? What was that? Let's talk about what happened, uh, first of all, in the New England Patriot Las Vegas Raider game. And then we'll talk about what happened in the Colts Minnesota Vikings game. You know, Bill Belichick, control freak, Mm -hmm. unbelievable Hall of Fame career, all those rings. Granted, they're struggling right now post-Tom Brady. But his whole thing is teaching players. John, this is the system we're running. This is your responsibility. This is what you do in these certain situations. Where did this return come from? Ramondre Stevenson ran for 172 yards in a game against the Raiders. Final play of the fourth quarter in a tie game 34-34. Run the football. He busts a big run through the seam, gets to the second level, sheds tacklers, is going towards the sidelines. It's the final play of the game. Nobody's got any timeouts left. He can't get out of bounds. So kneel down, fall down, or go out of bounds. Time's expired. And just live for the next series, which will be in overtime. He pitches the ball back while he's getting tackled. Then his teammate takes the ball, and he throws it further back to another guy out in the middle of the field. <laughs> Except that Chandler Jones of the Raiders ran across the field, intercepted the second lateral, and ran the other way for a touchdown. How does that happen in a Bill Belichick coach team where everybody knows what they're supposed to do? <laughs> Stevenson did this. And I'll tell you what's fatal about what happened. It probably knocks New England out of the playoff race. Instead of getting overtime and a chance to win, they fall to 7-7. Seven and seven. And there's a lot of people right now fighting. There's six teams fighting for the final playoff spot, wild card in the AFC. What a what a bad decision! What a bad loss it turns out for Belichick. And then what Minnesota did? Kevin O'Connell. He's got a football team that's eleven and three. Nobody saw this coming. Living on the wild edge. I mean, they're winning all these last minute games and all these close games and come from behind games and games in which they were getting beat. Indianapolis led Minnesota 33-0. I 
I mean, the Vikings were horrid. And Indy was scoring all which ways. Touchdown run, touchdown pass, pick six, fumble recovery, touchdown field goals. 33-0. Minnesota outscored Indianapolis 39-3. I sat there and I watched it. And I said, how can this be happening? And Jim Irsay, the, uh, the Colts owner, boy, you talk about looking like death sitting in the owner's box. Mm-hmm. And social media just do you think they'd pile on? Oh, <laughs> social media told Jim Irsay after the game on Sunday, go down and fire your head coach that you hired, go down and fire your defensive coordinator, and go down and fire yourself because you've turned the Indianapolis Colts into a clown circus. I've, I've seen bad comebacks. I've seen blown leads, but get outscored 39-3. Holy cow. Vikings found a way to get it done, and the Colts self-destructed again. Okay, you tell me about Belichick. You tell me about the well, Colts and Kevin O'Connell. It's it's <laughs> like the Colts fired Frank Reich, and then they got Frank Reich'd, you know, with this giant comeback at the end of the game. But what what a disaster it is. And, and yeah, Ursay is kind of a pompous guy. He's kind of sticking his nose and things. And, and yeah, he's getting knocked down. So what a mess. Um, as far as the Vikings go, I'm just thrilled that Kevin O'Connell is rookie coach, having a great year, resurrecting a, a great franchise. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of rooting for the Vikings, you know, as we go through this season. But that player on the the Patriots, that was surprising. I mean, you talk about football IQ. I mean, there ain't no IQ right there. Was he been watching too much of that Cal Stanford, you know, big play? That's that's right. Um, The band is on the field. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, dude's got to know what the situation is. And um, hopefully that that kid gets cut. I mean, that's Belichick isn't going to put up with that. Well, he's a leading rusher. They're not going to cut him. But, oh, Talk about sheer stupidity. And by the way, Belichick's record, post-Brady, 24-24. and Ah. Oh, what a struggle that has turned out to be. All right, let's talk about something different here uh, going from the NFL. Let's talk about pro golf because we've we've talked extensively, John, about the war between the PGA and the LIV and the Saudi Arabian money and uh, money washing and all that. This was kind of a surprise story. The Masters at Augusta just announcing that the guys in the LIV, even though they've been suspended by the PGA Tour, the guys in the LIV, if eligible, can play in the Masters. And that's from Dustin Johnson, the big money champion, to Phil Mickelson, who didn't do very well, to a whole group of guys that went abroad and got all this guaranteed money. So the British Open and Augusta, the Masters, will allow LIV guys in. The PGA Championships and the U.S. Open are still standing on the other street corner with Jay Monahan and the PGA Tour and say, no, you left, you violated your contract, you're still under suspension. Throw this into the equation. Is somebody going to get a special Christmas present? Their LIV, which signed 30 guys, including all those marquee guys we just referenced, is making a run at one of the last big money guys on our tour, that's still here, Justin Thomas. Mm. Rory McIlroy says, no, I won't entertain any offers. Tiger Woods has denounced everything that's related to Greg Norman and the LIV. But they're, they've met this week with Justin Thomas. And where there's smoke, there might be fire. So this this war is not over. And I, I, don't, I don't know how there can be a peace treaty when they're suing each other and antitrust violations and things of this nation. 
and and the PGA Tour, Rory and Tiger said, we won't go to the negotiating table till Greg Norman quits. Greg Norman says, I have 1,000% backing from the board of directors of the Saudi fund, which is funding this whole thing. Uh, LIV still does not have a TV contract. LIV did not draw a lot of fans. They don't have any marketing partners here in the States. Now, they're going to play 14 tournaments this coming year, a large chunk of them in the States. Now, whether anybody shows up and nobody watched when they were streaming, just it, it's not been resolved. It's It's terrible. It's, it's fractured golf for sure. And I, I got to the point, and I follow the PGA Tour, and I got to the point is there's hardly anybody left on the PGA Tour, so why would I spend a Sunday watching the final round? And, geez, wh- where's LIV playing? Who's on the leaderboard? I can't even find the bleeping results. They've kind of like disappeared off the radar, despite having all these names and all the money they're throwing around. So that's where we are with golf. What do you think happens? Well, it, all the personalities are all getting in the way, but maybe the organizers of the Masters recognize the same thing. We need to have marquee players because we're the marquee event. But it is interesting if you turn the clock back, you know, there's been a history at the Masters of discrimination and banning players. Now they're suddenly saying we're not banning anybody. We're welcoming them all, you know, LIV, PGA, what have you. Um, as a golf fan, I like to see them all playing. I like to see that. And as a you know person that appreciates and understands capitalism, I like to see the competitive leagues kind of getting involved, offering more money for players. And that's going to change the way the PGA does business. Well, it, it has changed it financially already in terms of what they're committing prize money to each of the major tournaments and what they're what they're doing uh, for for funding the, the young tour of players. But. There's so many good guys have left the PGA. Who's going to be left to play? Will they develop a, a next wave of stars? Or, and if, if if the LIV cannot get a TV network commitment to put their tournaments on here, how do they sustain what they're doing? Because they're spending a phenomenal amount of money. So that's the latest there. We'll have to hold our breath and see if another guy leaves. Is that guy Justin Thomas? Is he going abroad? All right, you're going to corner kick me one more question here. (laughs) Yeah, this this is another kind of a tough story going on in the world of sports. And another one of the greats is in a bit of difficulty. Yeah, let's talk about uh, post-World Cup soccer. Uh, This is not good news. Uh, Pele is age 82. He's in hospice in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, He's been fighting pancreatic cancer. Uh, it's come back again. So we're waiting. We know how I think this is, is going to end up. Uh, but he, he was very, very vocal about the World Cup within the last couple of weeks. He did he did an interview, a brief interview, uh, from the bed in the hospital in Brazil. But uh, it, it's sad. He's going to pass. And we've had great players that have come and gone. But, man, he was the first one. And I, I think I told you the story. I stood on the sidelines of the Meadowlands in the 1970s as a young reporter, and I watched him play for the New York Cosmos and the NASL. And they were playing before 77,000 fans. And I just could not believe the crowd, could not believe how gifted he was as a player. So that's the story with Palo. Uh, Lionel Messi, we talked about last week. He was approached by David Beckham. Would you be interested in coming to MLS and play for Inter-Miami? At age 36, he'll listen, but he's also been recontacted by FC Barcelona. Oh. And Paris Saint-Germain has now entered the negotiations from Mm. France. So he's going to have a chance to look at big money, at least from 
Paris Saint-Germain and from Football Club Barcelona. MLS has got some limitations as to what they can pay him, but you can make that up with marketing deals. So that's a fascinating story to see what Lionel Messi is is going to do. Uh, nobody wants this guy. What's going to happen to Cristiano Ronaldo? I mean, he, he got to the finish line of the World Cup, and he pouted, and he got benched, and then he moaned, and then he cried after after Portugal got beat. So at this point, the question is, who wants this guy? Because Manchester United released him during the World Cup, said go, and he gave gave his money back to Man U. Where's he going? Who's going to play play for? And who wants that baggage? It now seems to be carrying on with him. That's that's a really interesting story as we go towards uh, the reopening of the second half of the EPL season and the transfer window and all that. And one final note: TV ratings. World Cup soccer, the final game, mm-hmm. Argentina, France. Let me make sure I get this right. On Fox, 16.8 million viewers. All time high. Right on. Right on. Yeah. Telemundo, uh, 9.4 million here in the States. Oh, great. The Spanish broadcast mm-hmm. combined 26.2 million soccer fans in the U.S. watched the championship game. That's a staggering, staggering amount. That's that's kind of pushing the limits of Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah. I mean, it's great to see that America is really warming up to soccer. For the longest time, people used to mock it and ridicule it and kind of, you know, criticize it for the zero-zero ties. Nil-nil. Use the language, yeah. please, correctly. <laughs> and, uh, but it's great that people are appreciating. I think it's all part of the world, you know, just becoming, you know, the world's smaller, right? And we're a lot more connected to nations and other cultures around the world. So, you know, great to see that, that progress here in the United States. What's out there on the horizon? Well, that's 2026, U.S. World Cup, U.S., Canada, Mexico hosting. And by the way, lost in all the conversation, the World Cup is going to 48 teams, 48 teams when it comes here in 2026. They have yet to figure out the bracketing of how they're going to do the groups and all that. But FIFA, about four years ago, took a vote and said, yes, we are expanding the World Cup, 48 teams when they play in 2026, and then they awarded it to U.S., Canada, Mexico, and a tri-country host. It's it's going to be cool. Can't Follow wait. the money, right? You oh, know? Exactly. <laughs> like the NFL expanding the playoffs. All right, here we go. Fans Forum. We got people with questions. We got people that have sent us notes. John, where do you want to start? All right, let's kind of get organized here and uh, go there. And let's look at the comment section. And yeah, it's been filling up. And... Uh, where was the one here? Yeah, this one. So this is from Robert Bellinson. Happy holidays, Lee. Greedy agents sure make following baseball suck. <laughs> then their Hall of Fame keeps asking for a part of my retirement. You know, it seems to me that, and then he goes on to say, if the greedy agents gave 1% of the salary, I wouldn't need to give anything to keep it in business. Well, players have a right to earn money because I guarantee you this, the owners are making lots of money. And... By virtue of the contracts that have been given out, it's just state-of-the-art. This is all driven by TV contracts, and it's driven by, are you drawing three to four million fans per game? Uh, So there's a lot of money in baseball. It's no different in baseball. In fact, it's probably catching up in baseball than what, what it has become in the NBA and what it obviously is for the superstars in the National Football League. So... 
We're going to have great seasons. We're going to have a lot of stars. There's some things, and we'll talk about this in a future podcast, things that I still want to see changed about Major League Baseball. But please, Robert, if the agent came to you and said, we're going to offer you $30 million to participate in Hacksaw's podcast, you'd turn him down? No. Give me my $30 million. Let yeah. me go play shortstop or DH or pitch out of the bullpen for you. Yeah. So this is great. So many good comments here. And there's another one from... This is from Michael. He says, missed out on Correa. And we talk about the Padres here? I mean, how many shortstops do they already have? Well, I know the Padres missed out on Correa. I definitely know the Giants have missed out on Correa. And I'll tell you, Farhan Zadi, the general manager, is under enormous criticism of how could you let this happen? So I don't know. San Francisco is going to be a real substandard team now because he was going to be the focal point. And, you know, they've got they got one very good pitcher in Logan Webb and they got four guys that are probably number three or four pitchers mm-hmm. fill out the rest of the rotation. But I don't know what to do with the rest of their batting order now. I mean, Correa was going to be the focal point of everything. Maybe they go back and re-sign Brandon Belt. Uh, Brandon Crawford, obviously, is still there. Uh, Wade, the young outfielder who got hurt last year, he's still there. But Giants are really a substandard roster compared to what's at the top of the division, San Diego, Los Angeles. Yeah, I I think my dog Nona wants to get in on the fans forum here. So, (laughs) yeah, the Giants, they they need some marquee names, and there's really who's left, you know, in the free agent pool. So that's tough. I mean, here's another comment. This is from Dave. Dave Griffin goes, I want to talk sports with you. Love the hacksaw and a fan for years. Well, thank you. We're here every Thursday with our our live podcast, live stream. And then we also add things during the course of the week. And I invite you to uh, check my website every day. You'll be the third smartest person in this room beside me and John. If you read LeeHacksawHamilton.com. Next question. Okay, so these are these are the comments that come in on the YouTube channel. People, you know, responding to the videos, and there's some really good comments here. So let's get a few of these in. And this one is from uh, Mark Bachner talking about the Angels pitching. He says, "You are underselling Sandoval and Suarez. Sandoval was almost unhittable in the second half, and Suarez also got it together in the second half, just like Detmers did. All three of them took a giant step forward." Oh, I think I agree with you wholeheartedly. Those are not national known names. The problem with the Angels, and and lost in all the conversation of a bad season, everybody kept saying, don't have enough arms, don't have enough arms. Well, they needed depth. They didn't hit last year. Their team batting average was 233, Mark. I mean, I I was shocked when I looked at the end of the season stats and saw that, but they had so many guys injured. I'll tell you, they're going to be a surprise team. I don't know they're going to be the first place team in the West, but if they keep that pitching staff, and you're correct about where Suarez came from and, and the other pitchers. And now you add uh, what, what they've brought in as insurance policies. It's going to be a deep team, and it's going to be a better hitting team. And I think that's a critical piece of this equation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really great to see that the Angels are making strides while the Dodgers remain great and the Padres are making moves, too. All right, let's let's move over here. And we got a comment here from Chad McFly uh, says Granky can still pitch, could easily be a number five pitcher. Wouldn't be a bad sign. I agree with you. And John and I talked about this in our podcast last week that, you know, as the Padres were looking for another arm. This might not be a bad choice. Now, we don't know the dollar value of what he's demanding. He's still not signed. The other angle, you have to understand this. He is cut from a different cloth. Is that the right way to say it? (laughs) He's really a unique and very different personality. Uh, And if he can handle that. Now, he's in Kansas City. Maybe he's going to re-sign with the Royals and just finish up there. But 
he has had a really good career. And if you look at his statistics, even when he was pitching for a bad Kansas City Royals team, he owned the games that he started. And then obviously, he I thought he pitched pretty well for the, for the uh, Angels for a chunk of time, too. So I don't, maybe he's just going to stay in Kansas City because he's just offbeat. He's really different. But I, I concur with you. I But if he's asking for $12 million, then San Diego can't do it. Maybe that's why he's still on sign that other clubs that might have interests, you know, be them Boston or Detroit, don't want to pay that kind of money for an aging guy. He's not young anymore. He's got a lot of miles on that arm. But the guy can still pitch. He's had a really remarkable good career. Yeah. I mean, it was an intriguing name to talk about, but, you know, they just have, they just got Seth Lugo, right? We're talking about Tehran. So the Padres may not need Granky, you know, maybe, uh, but you can never have enough pitching, right? Well, because of the wear and tear factor. But you, you'd look at, at the back end of the Padres rotation, you know, including that, Adrian Morion. And can they figure out and solve Ryan Weathers' mystery? Mm-hmm. That's two more young arms to go with the back end of the rotation that's been solidified within the last week with what they did by by getting the two right-handed pitchers. So fascinating to see when we get to spring training how this thing sorts itself out. Oh, awesome stuff. I mean, so much going on in the world of sports. <laughs> okay, let's let's got a comment here about the Lakers. This is from Corey Simmons. Russell Westbrook was never the problem. Westbrook is a starter playing a bench role. Well, he's adopted to what they asked him to do. I don't think he was happy, but he adopted and he has produced. He's doing it because Corey, he's playing for his next contract. That's the big the big hidden storyline in this. He's got to impress somebody. But you know what? His numbers statistically in the last couple of years really tailed off. His ability to hit shots, clutch shots, lack of defense, decision-making. He's not the same player right now that he was at Oklahoma City. And granted, he's got a lot of miles on him right now. But the role that they told him you got to play, and you're going to have to earn and stay in this role and be productive uh, to to get minutes, he's played pretty well. He had a stretch he was averaging 18 and 8 off the bench. Now, that's pretty impressive. But I, but, but I caution you, though, the Lakers are still losing. The Lakers have got more injuries. I mean, with Anthony Davis now gone another month with another different injury, it's just, it's just a problem that's not going away. But Westbrook right now is not the Westbrook we remember, Mr. Triple-Double, when he was just carrying Oklahoma City along the way. Well, remember, it wasn't too long ago that the Lakers had so much young talent, and they traded away a lot of them for Westbrook, for Anthony Davis. I mean, you, you and you see these players scattered around the NBA, and you think, wow, if they were playing in Los Angeles, the Lakers would be a lot better. Well, the Lakers made all those bold moves because it is L.A., and you got to have marquee names. And whether that was Shaq or obviously uh, what what happened here to make this, this last set of deals to get A.D. out of New Orleans, but they traded away the Brandon Ingrams of the world who have become established rock-solid guys, mm-hmm. traded away a Kyle Kuzma, a role player who can shoot it and score. And they also they traded away a ton of number one draft picks. And that's the big issue right now. Uh, as we go towards the NBA trading deadline in February, John, is they don't have any cap space until they get rid of Westbrook's contract. And they have only two number one picks between now and 2030. <sighs> so the question is, you, can you find somebody to take Westbrook's contract, but you have to give up the number ones to make that deal happen? Or you better serve just to suck it up, get him off the books, have all this cap money next year to go get a third star with LeBron and AD, and still retain your picks. 
it's an argument that's going back and forth, back and forth. And there is there. I don't know if there's a perfect solution to the situation because past management put them, traded them into this mess. Yeah, it, it is a mess for sure. And I know you're the proponent of keeping Westbrook, riding it out, keeping those picks open to build it. But they painted themselves into a corner. Very much so. Yeah. Hey, listen, hope you've enjoyed our podcast. We're here every Thursday. Uh, I invite you to join us live stream or watch us. Uh, when it's posted, invite you to to subscribe so you'll know about all the different alerts when we're adding things to the podcast. And please check my website, LeeHacksawHamilton.com, uh, for a lot of written sports stuff every day of the week. John, Merry Christmas. We'll see you next Thursday. Okay, same to you and your family, Lee. Have a great sports weekend. Happy holidays to you, too. Thanks for being with us. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. Touchdown, San Diego! For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com.